This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. Four minutes after the hour, it's Friday, November 12th. Good morning and welcome to Morning Air on the Memorial of St. Joseph at Bishop and Martyr. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Let me remind you that Friday, and I try to do this every single Friday, I try to remind you that this is the traditional day dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and our Blessed Lord's Passion and Death on the cross. We begin every show and every hour giving thanks to our Lord through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, of life and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, in this year of St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of Relevant Radio, pray for us, and we invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Can you believe that Advent begins just two weeks from this coming Sunday? We're talking about November 28th, and Relevant Radio has a free and a very simple way for you to grow in your faith during this Advent season and get ready for the true meaning of Christmas, Jesus the Lord. All you have to do is sign up to receive Father Rocky's Advent inspirations. Now, these are short, uh, they're very compelling little daily audio reflections designed to help you go deeper into the beauty of the Advent season. These reflections will be emailed to you every single morning, all during Advent. All you have to do is sign up for Father Rocky's free Advent inspirations at relevantradio.com Advent or click on the banner of the Relevant Radio app. As we do every morning, the power scripture from the playbook of life is from John 17, 20, and 21. Our Lord Jesus prays for unity. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Our Lord Jesus Christ prays not only for the apostles that they may become perfectly one, but for those who will hear the gospel through their preaching throughout the ages, throughout the centuries. Jesus prays so that the world may know that the Father has sent Jesus. We need to pray for Christian unity in this day and age with well over 40,000 Christian denominations so that the world may know that God the Father sent Jesus and loves us as he does Jesus the Lord. And we pray with great confidence, Jesus, I trust in you. 
Now I want to talk about a very powerful ministry that's doing uh, fantastic work. They're providing life-saving heart surgery for individuals with Down syndromes, and we're talking about Hearts of Joy International. Hey everyone, I am Tim Harris, and I was the first person with Down syndrome that owned and operated a restaurant in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My restaurant served up more than just food. I got famous for my hugs. Tim was born on January 21st, which happens to be National Hug Day. What a coincidence. I don't think so. It's my dream to hug the world. I can't do this alone. I need your help. That's why we're teaming up for the Hug for Hearts Challenge, where we spread joy and heal hearts one hug at a time. This is a wonderful organization that uh, is all about helping children with Down syndrome to reach their full potential in life by granting them access to open heart surgery as well as offering a variety of different resources. We're now joined by Lauren Costable, the founder and the executive director of Hearts of Joy International. Let me tell you a little bit about Lauren. Uh, Lauren is a New Jersey native. She's a speaker and a fierce advocate for those with Down syndrome. She is deeply passionate about serving this population and showing the world the immense gift that these children are. Lauren graduated from St. Thomas Aquinas College with a degree in recreational therapy and has over 13 plus years of experience working with children with special needs. Good morning, Lauren. Welcome to Morning Air. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning to talk about the wonderful work uh, that your ministry is doing. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Lauren, can you tell us a, a little bit about uh, about your background, uh, about your calling, uh, and how this call uh, to serve uh, children with Down syndrome came? Yeah, so I um, it started when I was about 17 years old. I volunteered at a camp for children with disabilities, and um, God just really planted the seed in my heart for this specific population. And so I went to school, I studied recreational therapy and did, you know, music and dance and art therapy with this population. I say all the fun things. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And God was slowly moving in my heart. Um, just kept saying to me, you know, Lauren, this is what I have for you. And it wasn't until I went to, um, Uganda in 2017 that he kind of connected all the dots that I saw poverty for you know the first time in my life and I saw that these children are not um, seen as valuable they're actually seen as a burden and they don't have the resources um, that we have here in America and so I I met a little baby who was around the perfect age, which is six months old, to get the corrective surgery. She had Down syndrome and multiple holes in her heart. And I just remember holding her and her, you know, feeling her heart beat against mine. And, and God just told me, just help her. And that's really where uh, the mission started. That's really where the seed was planted. And I said, okay, God, I'll help her. And then it kind of <laughs> spiraled into, okay, now you need to help more children. And there's there's thousands of more children just like her, and you know this is your your calling. And I, I really do feel that that this is the way that I'm called to uh, serve and and love these children. And it was in Uganda that you really mm. felt the Lord uh, tugging at your heart. Um, how how much uh, experience did you have before that practical experience uh, with with this issue with Down syndrome and specifically children uh, that have heart issues? Sure. So. 
50% of children born with Down syndrome um, will have a congenital heart defect that requires this surgery before they're about six months old to a year. And if they don't receive that, then it becomes life-threatening for them and the damage is, is irreversible. And I had, like I said, I had a lot of experience with this population, but I was always doing the fun things, you know, singing and dancing and um, kind of playing games with, with uh, the kids and young adults. And God really kind of, uh, yeah, just kind of changed that for me when he presented this need with the heart defect. I was aware of it, um, but he really put it in the forefront and he kept placing that on my heart to ask about that when I was visiting these children and um, in Uganda. And yeah, it kind of took me by surprise. And I always say, I think it's a saint or someone who quotes like, God doesn't um, give you more than you can handle. And he... Um, I know exactly <laughs> the one you're talking shoot. about. Basically, uh, he equips even those who may not feel that they're ready. He gives them whatever yes. they need to do his work. Yes. And that that is exactly how I feel. Um, you know, doing this work on God's grace and just the the pure desire and love in my heart to serve this population. And and he just continuously tells me over and over that that's enough. Um, And so, yeah. And Lauren, your organization is relatively new. It's only been around for a a, a few years, but you've been doing some incredible work. Can you kind of give us a little snapshot of uh, Hearts of Joy International? Yes. So I started this in 2019. Um, <laughs> with a dream and a vision um, to help children in Uganda. And then God uh, really is always outdone in generosity. And so we have expanded to the Philippines, India, uh, Mexico, as well as we work here in the States counseling uh, pregnant mothers who get the prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome and have a congen- and the child has a congenital heart defect. And so since 2019, we've been able to heal the hearts of 37 children and counting because we have some kids in the waiting right now. Um, and even amidst the pandemic and everything that we've been through, we've still been able to continue and provide this necessary care um, for these children, which is really just just a testament to God. And how, I mean, I always say he just, he loves these kiddos so much and, and I'm being used as this beautiful instrument to bring that to the forefront. But he, he really, like these children hold a very, very special place in the heart of God. Um, and that's just very, very apparent in, in all the work that we do. We're joined by the executive director and the founder of Hearts of Joy International, Lauren Constable, uh, who is talking about the incredible work uh, that is being done by uh, her organization. Uh, Lauren, do you think that a lot of people just aren't aware, uh, first of all, of Down syndrome children in general and their special needs and and this specific issue uh, with the hearts uh, specifically? Yeah, I think we can always grow and learn. I think we've come a long way here in America as far as awareness of individuals with Down syndrome, but I think we can always, you know, be better and learn more. Um, But it's really in those developing countries like India or like Uganda or the Philippines where there's just not only a lack of awareness and resources for this population, but there's a stigma against them. So there's a negative connotation when speaking about um, these individuals. And so our work is providing this, you know, necessary medical care to save their lives, but also to educate communities and, and teach families and give parents, you know, and caregivers tools 
to understand this this very special child that God has given them and how they can best parent them or take care of them or, you know, help lead them in life. So that's what we really focus on is shifting that narrative to this child is not a burden, but actually this child is a great blessing and such a gift, not only to your family, but to the world. Lauren, you mentioned that there's a a little bit of a negative attitude towards uh, Mm -hmm. children with Down syndrome. Why do you suppose that that is? Uh, How much of that comes from the media, from the entertainment world? Um, And what can we do to educate and to really uh, let people know about the reality of children with Downs? Yeah, I think that if you tell someone over and over again that they are not good enough or that they can't do something after a while, that person is going to believe it. Not because it's true, but because it's it's so deeply ingrained in who they think they, they are or who they think they're supposed to be. And that's kind of how I explain it in these cultures. And even sometimes here in America with the way that doctors um, give this diagnosis is very negative. And I always ask them or I always question and say, hey, have you ever met someone with Down syndrome? Have you ever encountered them? Because what the verbiage or the language being said about them could not be any more opposite than the reality of their lives. They are the most joyful, happy, beautiful uh, people I've ever met. Um, And so I think, like Mother Teresa always says about that ripple effect, I think just the witness of our lives and those families that have children with Down syndrome or uh, parents or people that have, you know, are pregnant with people with Down syndrome or teachers or people in this community. I think it's the witness of our lives that's going to change uh, more so than what the media says or what is around us, um, because sometimes that could be negative as well. I just think it's it's the witness of, of people's lives and the reality of like these children are such a joy and such a gift. And um, yeah, they're just the best. I, I wish everyone, like if you haven't met someone with Down syndrome, could could experience that because I think just encountering someone will, will shift that negativity and that mindset completely. Absolutely. Uh, Lauren and I have had the blessing of meeting uh, mm. children with Downs, and I think you're 100% correct. I mean, uh, they're joyful. Uh, they have childlike uh, tenderness a, a, about them when you look into their eye. And so uh, once you meet a child with, with Down syndrome, I think it, it definitely tugs at your heart. Yeah, I say they have a superpower to, you know, their heart, some of their hearts may be broken that need to be healed and fixed by a doctor. But there's something so special about the way that God has fashioned the heart of someone with Down syndrome that their superpower is that, that they're able to, they have that, that sensitive, uh, type of heart that's able to read other people's hearts and see that um, in others. And it just, it really is their superpower. And they're just <laughs> the best people ever. <laughs> they're so fun. Uh, Lauren, you've been very blessed with your organization, as you mentioned, uh, has uh, been able to perform surgery on 37 little children. Those are 37 mm-hmm. little hearts that have been impacted. Uh, how have those families reacted? What was has been your interaction with the families in, in these different countries and in Uganda, in the Philippines, uh, India, Mexico, and, and here in our country? Yeah, it's it's just it's just endless gratitude. And one of my favorite parts of the job is seeing that shift in a family to when they're they're fearful in the beginning. Not only does their child have a disability and they're living in a culture that doesn't accept that, but their child is sick. And so they are unsure. There's a lot of unknowns. Is my child going to survive? What? Let alone the fact that the child has Down syndrome. And so um, 
there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of unknowns in the beginning and building that relationship with families is very important. Building that trust with, with our team, um, is something that we hold of great importance in nurturing those relationships with our families and seeing that shift of, wow, hearts of joy says this about down syndrome, that they are a gift and they're beautiful. And then watching the shift of that in a parent's heart and mind. I mean, you could see it in their whole body and their eyes that they love this child. They just didn't know how to, they didn't know how to care for them or they didn't know how uh, to do that or to be the best parent that they could be. And so that's when we come in and help them to do that. And that is my most favorite part is when they realize themselves, wow, this is true. My child is beautiful and and I'm going to fight for them now. We say we build advocates in parents because we don't want to just come in and do everything. We want to teach people. We want to show them by our actions um, and build up advocates in their own communities because that's how the ripple continues. It's, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be on this earth forever, but I want to leave something that is sustainable for, for people long when I'm gone, that this lives on and that we can continue to to break the stigma and provide this medical care and, and really just show the world that these children do have value and they, they have so much to offer and God has placed them here for a very distinct reason um, on this no, earth. No question you are making a, a great difference in, in those families. Can you talk Thank a little bit you. about the, the services uh, that um, Heart, Hearts of Joy International is providing and, and also approximately what does it cost uh, to uh, give this cardiac care? Sure. So we provide the um, actual open heart surgery for the child, as well as we do educationals, both in groups and privately in um, home visits um, with families and communities. Um, and typically it costs about $10,000 US for complete cardiac care for one child. So that includes the surgery, that includes pre- and post-op medications and care, flights, passports, visas, because we're often transporting children around the world for this uh, procedure, and uh, everything in between. And so, yeah, it costs $10,000 for for complete care for one child and their parent. So they travel with, with a parent or caregiver, so... Yeah. $10,000 is a lot of money in a place like Uganda. Mm, Yes. Yes. It's, it's a lot for our families. Um, which is why we do what we do because it's, the families often feel really overwhelmed and hopeless. And that's another thing that they often tell us is you gave us hope again, or you, you know, you, you showed us that there, there is a future for our child. And, um, yeah, it's just really so beautiful. And, uh, yeah, I just love working with our, our mamas and these families and um, being able to to be used as an instrument of God in that way is just really powerful. You have a new challenge uh, that's going on mm-hmm. right now. How, how can uh, folks uh, get involved? Yes. So we uh, launched our Hug for Hearts Challenge in October for Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And we're working with a young man named Tim Harris, who is an entrepreneur and restaurant owner from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he uh, is known as the King of Hugs. Um, He was born on National Hug Day, which is January 21st, and uh, we're teaming up together for this challenge, which is basically a global um, social media challenge where you post a video on your social media of you hugging someone that you love with the hashtag Hug for Hearts. 
then tag uh, Tim and I at Hearts of Joy International and at Tim's Big Heart. And then you donate to Hearts of Joy to help us to continue our mission and healing hearts around the world. And then you challenge four friends to uh, do the same. And so we're hoping to, yeah, um, spark a global phenomenon where people are spreading joy and love through hugs and donating to our mission and helping us to to heal these little hearts. For more information about the challenge, you can visit hugforhearts.com. Hugforhearts.com. And then it says all the information about how you can join. And we're really grateful for all of you to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Congratulations on the fantastic work that you're doing. You're making such a difference in so many different lives. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Lauren Costable, the founder and executive director of Hearts of Joy International. We need to take a short break. When Morning Air continues, we'll talk about the trial that's captured the attention of our nation, of 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who claims self-defense uh, from a... We're going to talk about it from a moral and from a Catholic perspective with Monsignor Stuart Swetland. So stay with us. There's much more to come here on Morning Air after this. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. Get connected to the conversation. Call us now at 888-914-9149. You're listening to Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Twenty-eight minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air. I am John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Our number, once again, if you want to be part of the program, is triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Now, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse has captured the attention of the nation. A young man, only seventeen years old at the time, is charged with killing two protesters last year and wounding another during the riots in Kenosha last summer over a police shooting. The defense rested yesterday after calling a rebuttal witness. 18-year-old Rittenhouse cried on the stand Wednesday when he said that he only fired to protect himself. Once I take that step back, I look over my shoulder and Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Rosenbaum was now running from my right side um, and I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski and there were (laughs) there were three people right there Obviously, a very emotional moment. Uh, Rittenhouse and his defense team say that he never intended to kill anyone, that he was a victim and acted in self-defense. How can Catholic teaching help us to understand this uh, very important case? Breaking it down for us from a moral and a Catholic perspective is Monsignor Stuart Swetland, president of Donnelly College in Kansas City, Kansas, and a moral theologian. Monsignor Swetland has served as the theological advisor to the Catholic Conference of Illinois 
and is the executive secretary for the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He's also a former Relevant Radio show host and a longtime contributor. Good morning, Monsignor Swetland. Welcome to the show, to Morning Air. It's great to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's always an honor to be on air. Monsignor, uh, first of all, I, I know you're not an attorney, you're a theologian, but I'd love to get your overall take on this legal trial, and a trial that's captured the attention of our nation, of the national media, and it's, it's received so much attention. As you say, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not listening to every moment of the trial, so I will leave specific commentary on the ongoing trial uh, to others. But to take a step back and look at the picture that we're in, the big picture we're in, this cannot be thought of any other way than a true tragedy. It's tragic that we've gotten to this point where because parts of civil society break down, uh, these kinds of things happen. Uh, although I, from the, the little I can tell from someone not sitting in the courtroom, I think the case against um, against him for uh, murder seems to be um, he's got a good argument for def self-defense in the particular cases uh, where shooting took place. The fact is he should never have been in that situation and he should never have put himself in that situation. He's untrained. He's not deputized. He's not authorized. He's got a questionably obtained, if not illegally obtained, firearm. He's only 17 at the time. We don't um, allow 17-year-olds to vote. We don't believe 17-year-olds are mature enough to make a decision about even uh, purchasing or consuming alcohol. There's reasons for that. And we don't want 17-year-olds in a spirit, What, for lack of a better term, I think this is a spirit of vigilanteism, to go out and take the role of trained uh, police force. Um, and so this is uh, th this is the real tragedy. He should never have been there. There was a curfew in place, which he was violating. And when you violate laws and you take matters in your own hands, tragedy follows. Now, the specifics of that tragedy, I think there may be an argument he might have been uh, rightfully acting in self-defense at the moment that the deadly uh, violence occurred. But we have to take the step back and say, this is why we leave policing to the police. This is why we have National Guard and police trained people. And if we need more people, we have formally deputized people. People should not take it upon themselves to become law enforcement or uh, protecting other people's property that haven't asked for them to be protected. Monsignor, I think that that's a, it's a great point. Uh, that's a perspective that we have not been hearing uh, in the mainstream media, uh, this idea of uh, um, being a, a, a person that's trying to take the law into his own hands, uh, what you call uh, vigilanteism. So uh, I think that's a very good point. Uh, as far as the, the self-defense uh, aspect of it, uh, it's pretty compelling. It seems pretty clear from the videos that have been shown and by uh, uh, Kyle's uh, testimony that he was acting out of fear for his life. Uh, but, uh, but from a Catholic perspective, as a general rule, is Catholic teaching, uh, what does it say when it, in terms of uh, having a right to defend ourselves uh, if our lives are in danger? We do have the right to self-defense, but it's as a last resort, and we should never be reckless 
in putting ourselves in situations where uh, the use of deadly force or, or even violence would be necessary uh, unless there's no other reasonable way uh, to deal with the situation. So, um, yes, there is a right to self-defense. There was a matter of seconds to make a decision like that. So how, it's 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 pretty difficult to to uh, to to be able to distinguish, you know, whether he uh, did it, uh, you know, shot the, this fellow too soon uh, or uh, whether he was truly just afraid for his life. Right. I, I, again, I think the, at least from what we've seen in the news reports and I'm not in the in the in in listening to every moment of the trial, but it seems like he did have a right to self-defense. Well, the one man who, who he shot who survived uh, was straightforward that he pointed a gun um, at uh, the defendant. And so he could uh, rightfully fear for his life. And, and that seems classic self-defense. Again, uh, the bigger picture for me is this is not how we want our society to be. And as as it's very important, we don't get the uh, um, give the idea that because he's probably going to be acquitted, um, he's probably going to be acquitted because he was defending himself at the moment these things happen, doesn't mean we want 17-year-olds to take up uh, questionably obtained arms and go out and decide to start policing our streets. This is not what a civil society wants. This is the beginning of barbarism when uh, we see things break down. Now, the bigger picture, of course, this was in the context of civil society breaking down. And, and that's the big tragedy of this. That when civil society begins to break down, these are the kinds of things that happen. We're uh, joined uh, this morning by uh, Monsignor Stuart Swetlin, uh, the president of Donnelly College in Kansas City, Kansas, a longtime uh, relevant radio host and contributor. And uh, Monsignor, let's talk a little bit about the um, just war theory. Uh, the catechism has a lot to say about uh, just war. The question in, in some people's minds is, does this cover acts of individuals, not, not only uh, nations? Well, part of the just war theory is that force should be uh, a lawful order, should be part of uh, with, uh, an order given by those in legitimate authority. And that's what I'm tr uh, referring to, that there was no legitimate authority here empowering this young man to do these things. Um, he should never have been there. There was a curfew in effect. And like I said, we, we, we train people to do these things. And um, we train them for quite a long time. Uh, and there's a reason why we train people so that we don't get in situations like we have in this particular case. Now, uh, what about um, individuals? So the, the individuals uh, are covered under the, the just war uh, theory? Well, the just war theory is meant for those entrusted with the common good to guide them ethically in making decisions about the use of deadly force. So the principles behind the just war theory that lead to the just war, war theory, which, if you will, is a macro uh, theory of the use of deadly force, it comes out of the micro situation of the right to self and other defense. So uh, a father of a family has a right to defend himself and his family if their home is being invaded. Uh, or if their lives are being threatened, um, that is, uh, and the principles of self-defense def that work there is that you're not intending to harm or or kill uh, the person attacking. You're uh, intending to stop them 
from the harm they're doing. And in the the trial, you heard that kind of language being used by the defense, being used by the defendant himself, and, and that's the appropriate language of self-defense. And then you take that up to the nation-state level, and you get the principles of just war, which include both the justice of war, can you go to war, and the justice in war, how the war is fought. Both have to be there, the use ad bellum and the use in, uh, in bello. So, um, but in, in these cases, again, one of the criteria is if there's a way to avoid the use of deadly force, that should be, uh, those options should be taken. And this young man should never have been out past curfew, should never have been doing the things he was doing. And that's, those are the kinds of things that lead to the tragedy of this case where he, he had to defend himself, um, it looks like, but he should not have put himself in harm's way. What about uh, defending property or defending one's home as opposed to d- defending oneself? Yeah, there's a fine line. Um, the idea that the home itself is is a sanctuary and therefore entry of that is a life-threatening act, that's usually accepted both in law and in morality. But if someone is, you know, uh, if I own property and someone uh, cuts across the front yard to get, you know, from one sidewalk to another, uh, I don't have the right to start shooting at them. Uh, that's that's not threatening me. That's not threatening my family. That's just someone who's who's doing some trespassing. Uh, so we make the distinction between entering the home and just cutting the corner of the property or things like that. What about um, the idea of using an atom bomb to kill an ant? Uh, idea, you know, right, using that's excessive force. Exactly. Ex- right. That's disproportionate. And, of course, everybody, even those empowered with the uh, right to defend society and, and deputized and, and authorized through uh, entry into the armed forces or the National Guard or to a police force, uh, they, they need to use the minimum force necessary to defend people, uh, defend the innocent from actual harm. And, and many of these things are covered um, in the, the catechism, in the section on avoiding war and just war. Um, it would be uh, under a section 2307 and beyond. Uh, so if, if our listeners want to learn more about that, there's, there's a lot more in the catechism that, that addresses this stuff. Um, what about heroic virtue? Uh, somebody who just who refuses to defend themselves, uh, they'd rather give up their life than take the life of other. Uh, is, is that something also that one might consider from a moral perspective, or is that something more for the St. Maximum and Colby's of the world, uh, the true saints? Well, pacifism is a legitimate option for those who who can exercise it in accordance with their vocation. Uh, The catechism is explicit that those entrusted with the common good, uh, those at the leadership level, have a duty as well as a right to defend uh, themselves and others but that individuals uh, may be called to forms of pacifism, either as witness or because of their vocation. I would argue, and the medieval tradition would argue, that uh, all priests and religious, by their uh, vows and by their consecration uh, to uh, religion at a higher level, in imitating Christ, uh, are to be pacifists. So even a chaplain in a military situation does not pick up arms and does not use deadly force. Uh, uh, their position is such that they um, are non-combatants. Uh, is the term used in in the legal terminology uh, because they're not using deadly force. And so, as a priest, even though I used to be in the military, and so I was authorized and trained, once I became a priest, 
that is not no longer an option for me. Monsignor Swetland, uh, looking at this uh, case uh, from a, uh, a big picture perspective, um, do you think that our society really is uh, breaking down the fact that, that half the nation thinks that one way, the other half thinks another way when it comes to this case? Uh, there's so much division, especially in the mainstream media. Uh, from a priestly perspective, what's your take? Well, that's where we should have 100% agreement that the breakdown of civil society leads to tragic results. And that's why the keeping of the peace, as you say, the catechism talks about all these things. It's in the context of saving lives, protecting life, and keeping the peace. The peace is the tranquility of order. And what we saw in Kenosha and other places is the breakdown of order. And when the order breaks down, these kinds of tragedies follow. And that's why it's so important uh, that we keep um, uh, the our civil society healthy uh, based on virtues, based on rights, based on the dignity of each and every human person. When that begins to break down, these kinds of tragedies will follow. I think that this is such a great perspective that you're giving us, uh, Monsignor, because there's such a lack of respect for human life overall. I mean, the fact that we're having, you know, over 2,000 abortions every single day in this country just goes to show uh, that human life is not being valued these days. Right. And, you know, the, the, the virtuous society uh, is one that works towards the tranquility of order. That's peace with justice. And that has to be there. Uh, we both need peace, which is the lack of, uh, you know, lack of armed conflict or the last, uh, lack of uh, the ongoing violence and deadly force. But also there has to be that justice where each and every person is uh, given his or her due. And from a Christian perspective, we see justice as fidelity to relationships. We are, are called to a communion, a community built on true community we, where we see each person not just as a person with rights, but as my brother and sister in Christ, because they too are made in the image and likeness of God. Monsignor Swetland, thank you so much. So much appreciate uh, your perspective. Uh, thanks again for being with us this morning. God bless you. Thank you. Many blessings to you. Monsignor Stuart Swetland, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more after this. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to Coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. She got the way to move me, Jerry. She got the way to move right. Welcome back to Morning Air on another Friday dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I'm John Morales. It's good to be with you. And now it's time to look ahead to this Sunday's Gospel. Always keep in mind that the Word of God in the Gospels, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, is powerful. When the Gospel, the Book Eternal, is proclaimed, Christ is passing by. Jesus is speaking to you. So listen carefully, folks, as Bishop Daniel Muggenberg, the newly installed Bishop of Reno, Nevada, shares his weekly reflection on this Sunday's Gospel with our very own Glenn Leverance. Our Gospel reading for this Sunday, the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, is from the 13th chapter of Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. 
When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And now to dive in and take a look at that gospel reading for the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, Bishop Daniel Muggenberg joins us from the Diocese of Reno. Bishop Muggenberg, always great to have you along. Always great to be here, Glenn. Well, as we get to this time in the church calendar, we start to read about the end of times. That's right. We're approaching um, the final Sunday of our church here, and the final Sunday of every church here will actually be the Feast of Christ the King. But the week before that, we begin to look at Jesus's promise to come again. Uh, And today we get the privilege of studying the passage from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, a whole section of Mark's Gospel that's uh, full of apocalyptic imagery. That, along with things in Revelation so hard for us to kind of comprehend, especially without a lot of extra study. But what's a good way to go about looking at this? So whenever we read sections of the gospel, or as you say, the book of Revelation, that use apocalyptic style of literature, um, we always need to remember that it was a style of literature that was developed, um, especially during a certain time period, um, of, uh, well, we would say the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament. And it really speaks to people who are experiencing overwhelming situations of distress or oppression. Um, And in many ways, uh, they are people who are dispossessed and their only hope is in God. And so apocalyptic literature helps them to look beyond the immediate situations that they are facing, situations that are overwhelming, and to see something about um, God's ultimate plan at work, and God's ultimate plan is always a plan of victory in Jesus Christ. And that's why the very word um, apocalypse means to reveal, meaning to pull the veil back so that we're able to uh, see beyond um, the current experience into some of the um, eternal significance of our uh, situation. Something that can be heartening for us or any people that were in a troubled time there to see the Lord set up and even given uh, new authority. Well, and that's very important uh, because um, in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus is actually revealing, and again, I use that word reveal, meaning to pull back the veil. He is revealing his identity as the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does that when he speaks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Uh, In the Old Testament, um, God was always presented as the one coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And so Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples as the very presence of God. Uh, He's also revealing himself as the presence of God by saying that he is the one who will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds. Again, that was a particular role of gathering that was um, attributed to God uh, in the Old Testament alone. And so Jesus is revealing he is the one, he is the Lord God himself incarnate. And that gives his apostles tremendous hope, especially as they are beginning to face the very first wave of Christian persecutions under the Emperor Nero. Bishop Muggenberg, here we have uh, a a look at the uh, coming of the kingdom, which we ask for, right, in uh, the Lord's Prayer each and every week. But this really means a new order. 
Yes, it does. When Jesus talks about um, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, powers in the heavens will be shaken, all of those apocalyptic images are saying something about um, the, Jesus revealing his presence. First of all, as the light of the world. You know, the book of Revelation tells us that um, in the New Jerusalem, the Lamb the Lamb of God is the lamp that gives light to the whole city. There is no sun, there is no moon, because uh, the light of Christ alone um, is, 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 is the one who radiates uh, and, and provides all, all light. Um, in the kingdom of God, it isn't a matter of Jesus being one element among others. Jesus is the element. He is the focus. Um, he's not just one among many. And that's why the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. It will only be the light that comes from the Lamb of God. And the stars falling from the sky. In the ancient world, you know, stars not only gave direction to people navigating, um, but stars also were symbols of earthly kingdoms, earthly powers. And Jesus is saying that in the fullness of his kingdom, he alone will be the one who holds all power and authority on heaven and earth. And that means that earthly powers, especially the earthly powers that tried to oppose him and crucify him, those earthly powers will fade away and no longer um, carry any weight or have any threatening force. They will fall from the sky in the face of his kingdom. This passage, Bishop Muggenberg, not the only one in Scripture that speaks about being ready for our Lord's return. How are we to interpret those signs? Well, um, and that's a good question. You know, whenever we uh, we hear apop- apocalyptic passages, people oftentimes um, immediately try to figure out the timing of our Lord's coming um, so that basically they can wait till the last minute to be prepared. <laughs> um, but that doesn't work. It, it doesn't work for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the things is that um, rather than trying to figure out the timing of the Lord's coming, Jesus just wants us to be responsive. He wants us to be persevering, and he wants us to live in a state of preparedness. Uh, And we hear that in various other um, images and parables of the New Testament. So our our Lord uses uh, the image of the fig tree as that kind of image to give us hope, especially in the midst of suffering. Um, You know, anyone who looks at a fig tree in the middle of, of winter it looks completely barren. It looks completely dead. It looks com- it looks very rough. And yet, with the first days of warm spring weather, that fig tree immediately bursts into life. And Jesus uses that as an image to give Christians hope in times of suffering, when they feel like they are in the dead of winter, when they feel like they are barren and uh, and living a very rough life. He reminds them that the springtime is coming. Hang in there. Um, be responsive to the grace of God as you experience it, when you experience it, but don't give up. Springtime is coming. So hang in there, and the Son of Man will triumph, and, and by standing firmly and steadfastly with him, you will share in his victory that he has already won on the cross of Calvary. And with that victory in our Lord, uh, how can we kind of hang on to that for today? 
Well, I think one of the things that we have to do uh, is by um, beginning every day, uh, by reminding ourselves of the Lord's victory, um, by making that morning offering to the Lord of all of our joys and sorrows, our sufferings, our distresses, our successes, and our achievements. Give those over to the Lord even before we experience them, so that our day revolves around the presence of Jesus living in our midst, and it becomes about Him not about us. And keeping the Lord in the center uh, will give us an anchor that will allow us to weather the worst storms um, and yet do so with the peaceful assurance of Christ's presence with us. Beautiful reflection once again, Bishop Muggenberg, if you'd be so kind as to wrap us up this week with your blessing. The Lord be with you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, who will fulfill his promise to come again at the end of time, fill us with hope and give us the grace of perseverance every day. We ask this in Christ's name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop Muggenberg. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Our story today is called The Power of Solitude by Steve Goodyear. Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick portrays the whaling industry of his time. In today's world, his book may likely upset readers who share more enlightened attitudes about the use and abuse of animals, but a scene in the story can teach us even today something about the power of solitude and focus in daily life. Melville gives us a turbulent scene in which a whale boat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale. The sailors are laboring to keep the vessel on course in a raging sea, every muscle taut. They labor furiously as they concentrate on the task at hand. In Captain Ahab's boat, however, there's one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar, he doesn't perspire, he doesn't shout. He is languid, utterly relaxed, quiet and poised. This man is the harpooner. His job is to patiently wait for the moment. Then Melville gives us this sentence. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the darts, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness, not out of toil. What a marvelous picture for effective living. Those who would live each day to the fullest must prepare for them in a state of idleness rather than toil. For many people, this means a daily period of quiet and meditation to focus, plan, or pray. Self-help expert Brian Tracy calls it an indispensable daily time of planning and preparation. He suggests we devote a full hour to alone time every morning. That's when we set our daily priorities so that we, and not events, are in charge of our lives. I don't have time for that, some people complain. My life's simply too busy to add one more thing to it. But most people find a regular period of solitude to chart the day's course. Still the mind, listen, and prepare actually creates more time than it takes. We are most effective when we start to our feet out of idleness and not out of toil. From Mark 1.35 And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place, and there he prayed. Thanks so much, Glenn, as always. Coming up next hour here on Morning Air, Catholic attorney Andrea Pichotti Bayer will be with us to discuss a Supreme Court case involving a death row inmate who seeks a pastor while being executed. And Dr. Joseph Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, will be with us to talk about a couple that gave birth to the wrong baby. Why is IVF wrong from a Catholic perspective? We will talk about it. Stay tuned. There's much more to come next hour here on Morning Air. Yeah.